On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased. There was a dead calm. This is the word of the Lord. You all know by now that I grew up at a little compressor station six miles outside Carthage, Texas. There were four company houses. There were 16 huge Ingersoll ran compressors that thumped away 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There were men who worked in shifts all 24 hours of every seven-day week. So there was always light and movement, people, noise. There were always children to play with out of four families living there. The most one-on-one -on -one time I had with my father was when we would go hunting or fishing. He loved to hunt and fish when he had time off, and I came to love hunting and fishing as well. My only brother is four years younger than I am, so I had four years with my dad before my brother got big enough to go along with us. So during that four years in particular, I had lots of one-on-one -on -one times with him when we would hunt or fish. Our favorite fishing place was Cross Lake, which is right out of Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, I remember a frightening time once. We were fishing on a Saturday morning at Cross Lake in a little, uh, they used to call them Arkansas Traveler boats, 14 feet long, uh, 10 horsepower outboard motor on the back. We were way across the lake catching catfish that morning, drift fishing, when all of a sudden there was a black cloud came from nowhere, thunder, lightning, pouring down rain. My dad cranked the motor as quickly as possible. There was a duck blind nearby. He thought maybe we could just pull up into that duck blind and be all right. But when we got into the duck blind, the waves had gotten so rough it was beating us to death against both sides of the blind. So we backed out of the duck blind. He cranked the little motor and we got to the nearest pier we could see through the rain. But it was scary. I was trying to remember this week, how big, what is Cross Lake? So you can Google most anything. They have Cross Lake, Louisiana, and there it was, 13.4 square miles, it said, 13.4. The Sea of Galilee is five times that big, five times as big. So wouldn't you imagine they could have very quick and violent storms on the Sea of Galilee? It really is a lake, a freshwater lake. Well, Mark says so. In fact, he says we know of four of Jesus' disciples, those closest ones who were professional fishermen, who fished all the time, and this was a severe enough storm that they were frightened. Let's take a look. Number one, in the Bible, water is used many times to mean two different things. Water in the desert is life-saving. Water of life can be life-changing, as when Jesus met a woman at the well. But many times in the Bible, water is a sign of great danger. In the beginning, there was chaos, the Bible says. There was darkness. And God spoke and said, let there be light and let there be order. And it happened. 
few weeks ago, Gail and I were at Temple Israel for the annual remembrance of the Holocaust. But Holocaust is not the Jews' word for what happened to them under the Nazis. Uh, Holocaust means burnt offering, so that's not their favorite word. The word they prefer to use is Yom HaShoah, which comes from the Bible. It means chaos. It can mean calamity. Chaos and calamity. Remember that all the writers of the Bible believed the earth was flat. They believed there was water above them because it was blue and sometimes it leaked down on them. They knew that if they went far enough north, south, east, or west, they would eventually come to water. And they also knew that if one were to dig down far enough, one could come to water. They really believed that the earth was sort of like Venice, Italy. Um, states driven down in mucky water and mud supporting the earth. If you read carefully the story of the big flood in Noah's time, not only did the waters come down from the heavens, but they also came up from the abyss. The waters came up from underneath. So water in the Bible often means chaos or calamity. Remember when John ends his revelation, he said, and there was no more sea. Chaos and calamity had been done away once and for all. A few days after Gail and I had been to this very meaningful service at Temple Israel, Helen Thomas got into the news. Helen Thomas, White House reporter, long enough that she had worked her way to front row center, had a chair reserved every time the president or the president's press secretary was there to brief reporters, Helen Thomas, front row center. But she was asked a question that day, What's on your mind, Helen? And she said, I want the Jews to get the hell out of Palestine. And the questioner asked, and where should they go? Well, Germany, Poland, America, anywhere. When Gail and I saw that on the news that evening, Gail said, Helen got too old. She got so old that that sensor between her heart and her mouth failed to work. And what she's had in her heart all these years came spewing out. That's what happened to Mel Gibson, you remember? Seth Alcohol was his foe. When Mel Gibson was making a movie about the Passion of Christ, and the Jewish community was complaining about the way they were being portrayed, people said that Mel Gibson's father doesn't even believe there was a Holocaust, that he says the Jews made up the whole story. Mel Gibson was denying that he felt like his father, but a few months after he made all those millions of dollars on that movie, he was picked up, DWI, in Malibu in California. And when the officers were making him walk the line, he was screaming, You must be Jews! You must all be Jews! And the alcohol had put to sleep the censor between his heart and his mouth, and all that venom came spewing out. It's chaos, it's calamity. The Jews did try to go home, those few who survived. More than two-thirds of all the Jews in Europe had been put to death by the Nazis. Their documentation of more than 1,500 survivors who were rescued, skin and bone, finally nursed back to health, 
who went back to Poland to reclaim their homes and reclaim their stolen businesses, and the Polish people killed more than 1,500 of them. General George Patton was in charge of the concentration camps in Germany, and only after his death did someone find a diary that General Patton had been keeping where he said, you've got to watch these Jews every minute. They're lower than animals. Where should they have gone? Where? I wish Gail and I could have taken Helen Thomas on that five-hour walk through Madonic with us. I wish she had gone with us a half day in Auschwitz. I wish she had walked with us five hours through Birkenau, the most proficient of all the concentration camps. More than a million and a half were gassed in Birkenau alone. I wish she could have gone with us to Sachsenhausen, to Ravensbrück, to Buchenwald, to Dachau, to Flossenburg, where we've been. Chaos. Calamity. Three years ago, Gail and I were on a cruise. This cruise stopped in Gdansk, Poland. We wanted to see Gdansk, like Valenza, the labor unions who helped drive communism out of Poland. And finally, we ended up in the plaza. Beautiful place in Gdansk, lots of flowers, and ice cream shops, coffee shops, people milling around on a beautiful sunny afternoon, when suddenly we saw works of art on easels. And these were clearly Jews, Jewish faces, Jewish faces greedily hovering over piles of gold, piles of gold. And Gail turned to a young man and said, did you paint these? He said, yes. And she said, you should be ashamed of yourself. And her voice was getting louder and louder. People were stopping and looking. She was saying, do you know that more Jews were killed in Poland than any other country in all of Europe? You should be ashamed of yourself. You should take these paintings down immediately and destroy them. He was hurrying away as fast as he could. Yom Hoshua. It's chaos. It's calamity. The winds and the rains came so quickly. And where once there had been order and beautiful late afternoon sunshine, there was a storm, life-threatening. Number two. But Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat, it says. Head on a cushion. In the Hebrew scriptures, the 39 scrolls there, whenever someone is sleeping in a storm, it's because he has great faith. Uh, those who can sleep at night are people who trust God. They have great faith. Fifteen months ago, Gail and I were in Berlin again. One of the really outstanding museums there, they called Der Alta, the old one. It's the old National Gallery. Most of the great museums today have wonderful little DVDs that you can rent. You hang them around your neck. If you have a guide showing you through, he or she takes you to their three or four you know, favorite paintings, and they spend far too long on each one. If you have the little DVD, you can see the ones you want to see and find out what you want to find out. In Der Alta, there is a really old painting, 201 years old now, painted in 1809 by Caspar Friedrich, and it's called Monk by the Sea. This is a big canvas. Um, six feet by four feet. It's dark. Really dark. You see lots of sand, 
lots of water and lots of cloudy sky. It's called Monk by the Sea, but the monk is only six inches tall. Out of six feet by four feet, a six inch tall monk, and he's facing away from you. But his hair and his posture have made art critics say it's a self-portrait of Caspar Friedrich. It's a self-portrait. Because his priest had been telling him, Caspar, if you want to know who you really are and to whom you belong, go to the coast at Rugen and stay there till you get the answer. And so he went as a monk, as a searcher, as one alone with all that sand and all that water and all that cloudy sky. He's facing away from you and me, inviting us to look as well and see who we are and to whom we belong. Do you really trust this story? Do you really trust? Can you sleep soundly? Number three, they then said to him as they shook him, Have you no concern that we are about to die? In the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophets use two places over and over in their prophecies, their interpretations of the times in which they live, saying, Do not ever forget Masa and Meribah. Masa and Meribah. And you have to go back into the Torah to remember that that... Those are the names of two little oases out in the desert where the Israelites who've been enslaved and abused by kings for 400 years in Egypt have forgotten already how bad that was and say to God, how could you do this to us? Lead us out here in the desert where we're going to starve to death and where we have no water. And God said to Moses, you know the stick you got in your hand? Strike that rock over there. Moses struck the rock and water poured out. And God said, tell them, Moses, don't ever do that to me again. Ever. Don't ever ask again if I care. Why can you sleep? How can you sleep? Don't you know we're about to die? Elizabeth Bernstein had a column this week in the Wall Street Journal. And she was writing about some women friends of hers. She said, this is Father's Day weekend, and we need to keep reminding ourselves that we don't give our fathers half a chance. She said, one of my friends was going through a horrible divorce. As soon as the husband walked out on her after making life absolutely miserable for her, my friend called her mother. And they cried over the phone. When she finally could get home to her mother and father, she hugged her father in the den, but then went on in the kitchen, told her mother all that was happening to her, what she was feeling, how frightened she was. This went on for four long years. And then one day, the friend went to see her mom and dad, stopped in the den, and said to her dad, I'm so sorry. I remember that all those years I was running track, you were always there yelling louder than anybody else. I remember when I was on the debate team, you were always there right down near the front rooting for me. I'm so sorry. I haven't talked to you really in the last four years. And she said his eyes welled up and he hugged me and said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. Elizabeth says another of her 
women friends said that she and her father had not been particularly close, even though he was always there when she was growing up, always there, working hard, showing up at the dinner table every night. And only when her mother died shortly after her dad retired did her dad start writing to both of his daughters, now adult, writing to them. Fourth of July is coming up. I remember the Fourth of July when you were seven. It was about a camping trip or a hunting trip or a fishing trip or a time to the beach. Thanksgiving's next week. You remember the Thanksgiving when you were 14? And as he wrote and wrote, my sister and I came to know Dad loved us as much as Mom. Didn't know how to say it. Never had figured out just how to say it until now. Another of her women friends said, My mother's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. We've been told by the doctors that we're in for a long, long slog. And so she said, I got my dad to sit down with me, and I looked him right in the eye. And I said, now, Dad, you and I have got years of tough, tough job ahead of us. We're going to have to be primary caregivers. So you and I have to get past how's the weather to how's your heart. How's your heart? You ask me, I'll ask you, and we'll talk to each other. Then he hugged me said he was ready. Number four. Mark has already told us in his gospel that Jesus rebukes evil spirits and makes a man who was sick, really sick, well. Same words used here. He can not only rebuke evil spirits in people's hearts, he can rebuke wind and waves and cause them to be mirror Calm, miracom. William McGurn wrote an article just recently about his hometown. It's a place in New Jersey you might have read about last October. A Catholic priest was horribly hacked to death, stabbed to death in his own kitchen. His little apartment hooked right onto the church and the school there called St. Patrick's in New Jersey. And William McGurn was saying, if that's all you know about our little town, that's not enough. Here was a priest we all loved. Father Edward had been with us for years and years, and everybody loved him. And suddenly somebody had stabbed him repeatedly until he died right there in his own kitchen. And then evidence pointed to the custodian, who was always treated with respect. All the children in the school were taught to call him Mr. Jose, even though he was mopping up and setting and moving chairs around. They believe Mr. Jose killed the priest after all these years. He is in jail awaiting trial. But William McGurn says, I've got a daughter, eighth grade, in St. Patrick's School there, but so does Mr. Jose. And his daughter and my daughter are good friends. They're on the same basketball team. I didn't know what we would do about that. The nun who runs the school called all the parents in and said, this little girl is going to come back to school. And before anybody says anything to her, I want you to ask one question. Do you have Christ in your heart? Father, Patrick, Father Edward would want everybody who goes to St. Patrick's to remember the very cause for which he gave his life all those years. Do you have Christ in your heart? And William wrote last weekend, 
my little eighth grader walked across the stage to get her diploma. She's being graduated from middle school to high school. And holding her hand as they walked off the stage was Mr. Jose's little girl. And all the other kids were hooping and hollering and throwing their arms around each other when the ceremony was over. I think, he said, we've done it right because sister told us, don't say a word till you've decided whether you have Christ in your heart. <laughs>